Welcome to Tuning In, the podcast of the Handel and Haydn Society, recorded in Boston, Massachusetts. H&H is the nation's longest-running arts organization, founded in 1815, and since the 1980s has been a leader in the performance on period instruments of music from the Renaissance through the 19th century. In each episode of our podcast, we explore music and artistry and the way both weave us through society and life in general, within the early music field and outside of it. We highlight music featured during the society's past and that planned for its future. I'm your host, Guy Fishman. front of the Handel and Haydn Society's stage is typically populated by string players, violins, violas, cellos, and from a distance, these instruments look pretty similar to their modern counterparts, adorned as those are with the innovations and conveniences added to them in the 19th and 20th centuries. Behind this wall of strings is where period instruments not only sound, but look more and more alien to their counterparts. To those of us who perform on period instruments, quantifying and communicating what those differences are and what they mean to us, and possibly what they meant to the composer, feels very much like part of our mission, and h is fortunate to have expert ambassadors of each instrument it fields. My guest today is a model for such a player, our principal horn, Todd Williams, in addition to his work at H&H, Todd is principal horn of Philharmonia, Boston Baroque, Apollo's Fire, Tempesta di Mare, Mercury, and numerous other groups, and he performs on the modern valved horn with the Philadelphia Orchestra, Chamber Orchestra of Philadelphia, and many others. He is on the faculty of the Juilliard School, no big deal. Todd, welcome to Tuning In. <laughs> Thank you for that introduction, Guy. Hi. <laughs> Hi. Good to have you here. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. So I wanted to start by asking you about the beginning. You know, it, it seems to me that piano is an instrument where you get immediate gratification, you press a key and you get a sound. Yeah. Uh, the violin is ubiquitous. Maybe the flute is difficult. Oboe gets more difficult. But the horn, yeah. I mean, yeah. even the best horn players in the world can't guarantee that a note's going to come <laughs> out. And so how does a child start on the horn? And how did you start? Great question. My goodness. Uh, I don't know. Glutton for punishment, maybe? I don't, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> no, I, uh, I grew up in a musical family. I have two older brothers. They played trumpet and trombone. And my father was a singer. He was actually a choral conductor his whole career. And my mother also sang. And so it just made sense for me to be a musician as well. I mean, it was it's literally in my blood. So <laughs> why, why not do that? And actually, my father was conducting a messiah on Christmas Eve. And my mother was singing in the chorus. And I was born the next day. <laughs> when they finished the performance, they rushed to the hospital and I was born the next day. So I've literally grown up <laughs> with music in my life. It's absolutely an inseparable part of who I am. 
But how I stumbled onto the horn is really its own question. <laughs> it was sort of meant to be that I would be some sort of musician, but I think ultimately it really was the sound of the horn. I was drawn to it. I loved it. And specifically, I remember just wearing down a cassette tape. This is really years ago. Um, it was a recording of Handel's water music. On side A, it was water music. Side B, it was uh, fireworks. And it was a big modern orchestra. I think it was London Symphony. Uh, so it had nothing to do with historically informed anything. It was just, just a good performance. But I didn't care about that. I didn't know about that. I just loved the sound of the horns. And I wanted to start lessons right away. I wanted to join the band. But uh, I was in the fourth grade at the time. And my school district had just uh, unfortunate um, funding cuts, you know. And so I had to wait a whole year. And it really upset me. <laughs> so I didn't start the horn until the fifth grade. And uh, and you're still making up for that last time. I know, I really am. <laughs> I've always been a late bloomer, but uh, <laughs> but I loved it so much. It, it was just a part of my life, and I was lucky. I went to kind of a small school in Northeast Tennessee at the time. I was the only horn player for several years, and then whenever. I got into high school band. There were other horn players. And as a freshman, I almost beat the senior in our, in our annual tryouts. Oh, wow. And yeah, and, he, and this, this player was really good. I looked up to him and he made Allstate. And, and um, yeah, I placed in regional bands all the time, uh, every year that I was eligible. And I did even make Allstate every year I was eligible. And this is all before I had private lessons. I just took a shine to it. And my father said, well, if you're really serious about this instrument here, read this book, you might learn something from it. And <laughs> the book was um, The Art of French Horn Playing by Philip Farkas. And Philip Farkas was one of the greatest pedagogues of the 20th century, certainly in America. He was principal of the Chicago Symphony, as well as Cleveland and uh, a host of other <laughs> orchestras at a young age. And he literally wrote the book for our generations. There were other horn methods, obviously, prior to his, but his was so detailed. I taught myself how to play the horn based on his book. Mm. And my father studied at Indiana University, and Philip Farkas was one of the many horn teachers at IU. And so it was just somehow it, it was all meant to be. I got this book, and there's this mentor, and I looked up to my father, and I just if that school could produce this kind of a musician, I think I'm going to go to that school. And, oh, looky here. Here's a guy who wrote a book that helped me learn how to play the horn. And he teaches at this school. I think I'll go to this school. Really, I, it's not an understatement. It shaped my life from that moment on. So you went to Indiana University? I did. I loved my time there. When I auditioned, because I had no formal tutelage, the entire audition panel was basically in agreement. Well, I was talented, but my technique was just a mess. And I was accepted into the school, but I wasn't accepted as a music major at first. And, and IU had this special program called a Bachelor of Science with an outside field. More or less a degree and a half. You can focus on music, but then you have to take something else. And I said, I don't want anything else. I just want this. And they, they came back with, well, we admire your dedication, but tough. <laughs> That's life. And so they said, at the end of your first semester, when you take your jury, tell us that you're interested in the Bachelor of Music program again, and we will reconsider you. And so I did my first semester 
I just played long tones forever to build my face, build the foundation of what it takes to produce a pure, healthy, well-supported sound. And by the end of that semester, I was approved unanimously. And during that semester, you didn't have private lessons? No, I did. In fact, it was my first private lessons. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, so I was wondering if the teacher who first taught you looked at you and said, would you learn to play it from a book or something? You know, <laughs> I mean, yeah, exactly. It's pretty absurd, right? And also amazing. Well, <laughs> I mean, it, you were there. You got that far. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's true. And my first teacher was Rick Serafinov. He was a big early music component, one of the guys going around the country playing period horns. And I had no idea what that was. And I had no idea how lucky I was to encounter him first. Well, right. So I'm curious whether this exposure to Rick Serafinov, who I'm sure you're going to mention, also built horns. Is that right? Indeed, he does. He sort of has a monopoly on uh, natural horn in America. <laughs> They're everywhere. <laughs> right, exactly. So whether that exposure to him is what drew you to early music and the early horn, or was it something else? Or how did that happen? It was really that. And once again, dumb luck. Really so much of my life, I've been at the right place at the right time. I do remember it was a lesson with Rick. I was... Uh, butchering some etude and I was tired of butchering it and I'm sure he was tired of hearing me butcher it you know and it's one of those situations where I would not give up but I just put the horn down on my lap for a moment I just needed a breather and Rick had these horns all over his studio natural horns period horns baroque horns classical horns horns without valves everywhere and I just finally pointed to one and I said what's that thing and he sort of smiled, almost like a smirk. And he said, oh, this? Here, try it. And I played one note, and I swear to you, I just fell in love. It was like going back to when I was 10, and I heard this sound. It was intoxicating. That was it. That's what I wanted. Every bit of it felt good. The horn physically vibrated. One aspect of, of modern horns is that they are heavier. There's just more metal on the body itself. That adds weight to not only the thing that you're holding, but it adds weight to the sound. So any instrument builder is always trying to find that balance of properly supported structure, but you also want it to feel light. And you can feel the thing just vibrate in your hands and you really feel alive. I'm sure that's how string players must feel. You feel that body just resonate when you move that bow across the strings. Brass don't always get that opportunity, you know? Every now and then you find just an instrument that suits you and lets your soul just sing. And I really felt that the moment I played a natural horn. And we're glad you did. <laughs> the beneficiaries of that introduction. So I was wondering if we could shift a moment to a topic you know a lot about, and that's the history of the horn, because we've <laughs> thrown around these terms now, valved horn, natural horn, wondering if you could explain what those are and the evolution. We don't need to go biblical, but if we did... <laughs> well, hey... Well, you take, you know, a, a ram's horn, literally, right? And, and play through it. Spot on. First, I want to address something you just said. You just said a key word that is so important in this discussion that's tossed around and definitely overlooked. The word is evolution. To really get this right, you have to start from the beginning and look forward, not the other way around. Because if you're venturing into uncharted territory, you start with what you know. That's a pretty safe bet. I hold the body or the corpus of the instrument with my left hand because there are valves on the left-hand side, and I stick my right hand inside the bell. That's what I do for the modern horn, so I'm going to do the same for a natural horn. 
And indeed, that is correct, about 1750 onward until we had the valve. Well, there were plenty of players who would take, say, um, an 1840s French-style horn, like a Courtois or a Raoult or maybe a Hollery, and they would use this hand technique of France, 1840s, for example, and that works for Beethoven, but they would also use that for Bach, and we know now that that's just not correct. That's coming to the game with, with certain expectations in your mind, rather than trying to free your mind and imagine what it would have been, or at least might have been, during the time period. That really comes from studying the music itself. Look at the parts. Look at how the music is written. Look at how we are used within the overall big picture. And if you play the horn with the hand inside the bell, you have a fully chromatic instrument, which is precisely what the modern valve did. It facilitated this fully functioning, fully chromatic instrument all in one. You don't have to physically alter the shape of your instrument in order to play in a different key. And that's exactly what we had to do in our early days. So let's just back up a second and, and clarify something for the benefit of our listener. The horns you're talking about in 1840, the, those French horns, those are not valved horns. Correct. And so you put the hand inside the bell and in addition to what you do with your, I believe it's called embouchure, is that correct? Exactly correct. Your lips, you use the hand to manipulate the length of the horn to create different pitches, which is what your valves do on a modern horn. Spot on, right. I win. And so you win. <laughs> <laughs> so this is incredible because it's interesting. First of all, it's interesting that anybody in 1840 right. was playing any Bach at all. <laughs> I mean, that resurrection had just begun right. about 12 years before then. And it's interesting that, you know, think of the music we think mm. of 1840s. I mean, Symphony Fantastique has been written, Mendelssohn, some Schumann, Brahms is starting to think about writing music. That's like big time music and still the horn, would you say would be more similar to a classical horn, like an 18th century horn, than it would be to a modern horn? Let me answer this a little more appropriately. You said, let's get biblical. <laughs> or, or you said, let's not get biblical, but, but I, I will go there because it does <laughs> aid in the understanding of the evolution. You're right. We're called horns because we quite literally came from the horns of animals. In our earliest days, if you would take this part of an animal, bore out the center, shave off one tip, now you've got this funnel or cone-like configuration. And this cone helps give a particular sound. It's not necessarily a bright in your face, loud kind of sound. It's sort of mellow and distant. And we're using it really back then as a means of communication more than a musical instrument. But yeah. it didn't take long for people to figure out you can actually play some notes on this thing. The hunt was all the rage in France in 1600s. Anyone who was anyone had some sort of hunting party. And if you were a part of the hunting party, as a horn player, you had to know numerous calls because they meant different things. The horn was just starting to dip its toes into the orchestral world. Almost always, we represented some hunting call. So I have a question about that. Obviously, you're on horseback. So first of all, the horn probably has to be smaller than the one you use on stage because mm -hmm. you're, you're holding it with one hand and you can't manipulate the bell with the other hand because you're holding onto the horse. And so I'm mm -hmm. guessing that without the hand, there's a limited number of pitches the horn can produce and all these calls are different variations of combinations of those limited number of pitches. I'm, I'm thinking about 
a concerto I heard once for Hunting Horn by Leopold Mozart. It had four notes. The entire concerto has four notes that the horn uses. <laughs> I can't it. say I love that piece. <laughs> well, it's a toe tapper. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> so my question is, when composers began using the horn orchestrally, in honor of its origin as a, an instrument of the hunt, would they purposefully limit the music they wrote for it to replicate that sure. limitation? Or did they go full out? immediately. I don't know that they purposefully limited the music. It's just simply all that was available. Some of our earliest pieces are quite, for lack of a better word, simplistic. But it didn't take long for some composers to do the exact opposite. They exploited as much as possible the full range of the harmonic series. One slight correction, sorry. Everything you said was exactly correct, except that the horn itself was smaller. In fact, it's quite the opposite. The horn was larger, it was wider, so that you could actually slide the instrument over your shoulder and sometimes over your head on the opposite shoulder. And so your body goes through the large hoop. Uh, the hunt was so incredibly important. And eventually we started to have this understanding of an orchestra horn during the Baroque period. And that's where things shift just slightly. But in the same time period, these two types of horns were floating around. They're almost always a single coiled fixed pitched instrument. So that means for the key of F generically, give or take. It's about 12 feet long if you unravel it. More or less, per half step, per semitone, it's about a foot and a half extra that you add to the overall length. Mm -hmm. Well, that's all um, That's all very interesting, but I do have one correction for you. Uh, Go, that this is my. This is my podcast, so on my podcast, the hunting <laughs> horn is smaller. <laughs> there were... Dear listener, there, today I stand correct. The hunting horn is smaller. Okay. Hey, continue. there's an opening at the Juilliard School. Do you want to continue? Teach there? No, Go ahead. Okay. Take my spot. <laughs> so, no, I'm sorry. right. Go ahead. If um, that's another reason why anyone who has ever seen horn music, our instrument works on the principle of movable dough. So that means about ninety percent of the time our music looks like it's in C major, regardless of the actual key. Key is inconsequential for us. We didn't have key signatures for a long, long time because we are limited to the notes of the naturally existing harmonic series. And many composers used as many different awkward, out-of-tune, funny, non-harmonic tones as possible or as acceptable. But you're still limited to that one key. So if you want to play in a different key, you physically need to put down that horn in F and you need to pick up a horn in D. You have to change instruments. You would have one horn per key. That's a lot of horns. That's a lot <laughs> yeah. of horns. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So it didn't take that long for a pair of brothers, uh, the Leichnamschneider brothers, say that 10 times fast. Wow. Uh, <laughs> they came up with the concept of, you know, if you wrap the instrument a little tighter on itself, thus making a smaller looking horn so you're on to something um <laughs> and and cut part of the metal thus creating a body or a corpus and an external hoop of brass called a crook now you can change the key so your body remains your corpus is in generically we call it c because it's sort of immovable. And then you add this hoop of brass in order to determine the overall key without using any hand inside the bell. A healthy tone for wind and brass is produced by a combination of airspeed and muscle tension. 
air passing through that vibrating surface will create a sound. So if I just increase my airspeed, but now add just a little bit of vibration from the lips, like that, and I increase my airspeed as well as increase the tension in my lips, I can get that. And then you add it to this fancy funnel called a mouthpiece, and you get something similar. And then you put that thing inside the horn. So that was just your mouthpiece not attached to the horns. This is a piece of metal that comes in and out of the end of your instrument. Correct. And so now if I put all that fancy stuff together and I play the notes that are possible on this horn in the key of F, these are the notes that I can play. So as you can hear in the low range, there are a lot of gaps and these gaps are called intervals. The lower you are, the wider the gaps, the higher you get, the closer these intervals become. And these intervals or partials become so close together that that's where the high wire act comes into play. You're having to navigate creating a printed C versus a printed D, which doesn't sound like a big deal. But when you're two octaves above the, your lowest possible notes, any number of things can cause you to fall off that high wire. So it, it really is this crazy act of, oh dear God, why did I do this for a living? But <laughs> but it's so rewarding when it works. <laughs> it brings me to this, you know, I, I mentioned this to you every now and then as a joke, but I want to share this with our listeners that I saw an interview once with Philip Myers, who is the former longtime principal horn player of the New York Phil. And he said, <laughs> you know, I'm one of the best horn players in the world. <laughs> but even I can't guarantee 100% that a note is going to come out when I blow it. And and that's on a modern yeah. horn, and that's a yeah. great player. And so yeah. I just want to highlight that you've made your life so much more difficult by using this <laughs> instrument. Exactly. Which is already difficult, right? And so it's so impressive, right. the, the degree of accuracy that you achieve. But this is fascinating. So continue. You've discussed the naturally available pitches on the instrument and how much more difficult they are to manipulate when you get higher and right. higher on the instrument. What more can you do on the horn? Well, that's essentially it during this time period. Every single painting, picture, sketch, as well as written account shows the horn played with the bell up in the air in the hunting fashion. Mm. So as I said before, the higher you are in the register, there are more notes available to you. So composers wrote for us in our highest part of the tessitura. We're not playing in the comfortable mid-mid-low range. We're playing an octave or two above what's standard. So because of this, we are able to squeak out a few more notes. That's why Brandenburg sounds a certain way. And that's why all of our music looks a certain way. It's up there for a reason. It's manipulating all the higher partials for a reason. You have more notes to play up there yeah. rather than... That's one octave in the mid-register on the F crook on the Baroque horn. That's it. Going back to your Leopold Mozart <laughs> horn concerto, there's not much you could do with that. Over and over. I mean, that's fine, but you get composers like Handel or Bach, who really wanted to explore other things. Yeah. 
there's some really out of tune sounding notes there. And it's really for our lifelong struggle. It's funny and sad all at the same time that we've, <laughs> we've had the same struggle for so many years since about 1750, give or take. Is there anything you can do to manipulate those notes to adjust their intonation or whatever your instrument gives you is it? There's a theory called embouchure tempering. You manipulate the sound, you'd alter the airspeed or the muscle tension. You can purse your lips or you can loosen your lips a little bit more. You can affect the oral cavity. You can change the position of your tongue. You can say a round aw, or you can say a high e, raise the soft palate. And all of those things really go into play of basic tone production. Wow. Players of the day absolutely mastered this. That doesn't mean that it was correct. Francoeur said brass players don't stand a chance because we were bound by the harmonic series, which meant and still means that our 11th and 13th partials will be out of tune. Wow. And we have to try our best to manipulate that. There was no hand inside the bell prior to 1750. Well, nowadays we have these tone holes, these vent holes, to literally let out just a little bit of steam, <laughs> a little bit of air, exactly what recorders do. It's the same principle. And there were trumpets during the day that had tone holes. But um, from my understanding, they date around 1760, 1770. And by then, it was well established that horns were using hand technique. So that's why there are no existing horns with vent holes. This is a modern adaptation. It's a way of appeasing modern audiences. I'm not sure that most audiences are really ready to hear how it probably would have been. Intonation would not be so accurate. Well, and this is one of the legacies of the modernization of instruments like the horn, the flute, mm. the exactly. piano instruments that used to struggle with the natural, and what I mean natural, literally occurring in nature. Yes. Lack of standard intonation. You cannot tune a piano perfectly in tune. It has to be tempered, and few people know that. You know, composers manipulated, they use this, they use this for their artistic endeavors. And sometimes art is not beautiful, and so you choose a key, like F-sharp minor in some <laughs> 17th century tuning, that's going to be painful. Right. Yeah. And maybe the composer wanted that, you know? Yeah. Some paintings are not beautiful, they're painful. Yeah. This is one of the things that these instruments allow for. It can't always be perfect. It's an illusion that we can achieve perfect intonation. Absolutely. But there's a payoff. You get something in return, and that's something those of us in our field use period instruments mm. deal with all the time. And a question that you alluded to, will the listener be willing to accept the payoff if the intonation isn't perfect through no fault of my own. This is how right. the instrument is. This is what Bach wrote. And it's not designed to be perfectly in tune. I don't know. It's a, it's a lasting no. question. It's incredible. And I just, I don't want to deal with another reviewer saying those out of tune horns. I mean, there was even a note during Handel's time, especially for the water music, other performers during the day complaining about the out of tune horns. Yeah. So <laughs> it's been with us all along. Long suffering, you guys. Long suffering. <laughs> That's a great point. <laughs> well, you know, and the things you are saying, I'm learning so much. Someone going to see a pianist or a violinist play a concerto or even in an orchestra sees most of the mechanism right in front of them, mm. right? You see the hands, you see the arms. Right. You know, we think about things to 
cause relaxation so that muscles don't tense and we make adjustments to angles of this and that where my elbow is and you know all of these little considerations but basically the mechanism is visible for all to see it's incredible how much goes on effectively inside your skull exactly right that affects everything and none of us ever see this we have no idea this is going on it's fascinating I have a deep love affair with singers. My father sang, my mother sang, not professionally. I married an opera singer. I've spent my whole life and career talking to singers, trying to learn their craft. And the more I talk to as many different types of singers as I can, I'm convinced that horn players and singers, specifically tenors, are very, very similar in how we think about tone production and how we actually produce a sound the entire night. We're trying not to mess up. You can just fall off that spot without even trying. But that's not the point. You're not trying to think about not making a mistake. You're supposed to be thinking of higher levels of art form. Um, how can I make this sound effortless and beautiful? And how can I stir the soul? Meanwhile, a horn player comes out and crack, cracks all over the place. You do, It kills the mood <laughs> and it's soul destroying. And I just think, oh my God, believe me, I didn't do it on purpose. You know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just what goes through your head. But I mean, it's funny. I really do think of singers all the time. Fun fact, I made my solo debut as a singer before I made my solo debut as a horn player. <laughs> wow. I was a kid. Again, my father hooked me up for his college choir. I sang the alto solo for the Bernstein, Chichester songs. Oh, yeah, of course. That's cute. Yeah, it was cute. <laughs> there might be a picture floating around, but anyway, <laughs> I just—I always think about this, and I might overhear some of my wife's private lessons, and it's reassuring to hear that so much of what she teaches is what I was taught and what I continue to teach, trying to produce the best sound you can and always having to overcome natural deficiencies, <laughs> natural inefficiencies, natural things within our body that prevent us from always being our absolute best. How do you manipulate that? That's hard. Yeah. And to do it on a daily basis. And that's where I always say, it's the driver. It's the player. It's not so much the equipment. If you're always out of tune, there comes a point where you have to question, it's probably not the equipment. It's probably user error, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Check yourself, go back to like my first semester of college, play long tones, check your basic technique, your concept of sound, revisit those elements. It's amazing what can be corrected that way. So, Todd, when I invited you to <laughs> yep. join me today, I had no idea you would talk so much. <laughs> Sorry. And I had no idea that everything you would say would be so interesting and brilliant, which I'm very, very grateful for. Thank you. We have clearly not gotten to everything that can be said no. about you and about the horn. And so here's a proposition. Okay. We've lightly covered the origins of the instrument and have gone up to about 1750. Still a few questions, but that's mm. basically the range. Handel and Haydn released our 2022-23 season, and there are several works that will feature the horn. I, I see Bach, obviously. There's an mm. Easter oratorio I'm excited about. Mm. There is a Mozart and Mendelssohn concert, which... You Ooh. are certainly going to be on. Definitely. And Beethoven's Eroica Symphony, in which ah. you will play a pivotal role in the first <laughs> movement. Pivotal <Indeed>. role. <laughs> and so we're going to have some opportunities to talk about, perhaps, you know, recap what we've discussed today and 
maybe the horn in the second half of the 18th century and then going on into the 19th. And I'm wondering if you would be willing to come back and continue this conversation. Absolutely. As it relates yeah. to one of these concerts or maybe more than one of these concerts. Because this is just absolutely fascinating. You've been fracking away behind me for years <laughs> and i did not know that all this was going on so i feel bad for your soft palate to be honest i i, I, I have a new empathy <laughs> oh <my God>. so <laughs> well said <laughs> i know our listeners have benefited from your expertise and your eloquence and i'm so grateful that you took time to join me today and i can't wait for you to come back todd thank you so much for being here thank you so much guy Todd Williams is Principal Horn of the Handel and Haydn Society. Thank you for tuning in. Please visit our webpage at www.handelandhaydn.org slash podcast for this and previous episodes, as well as more information about Todd and photos of various natural and valved horns that he uses. I hope you'll join us for our next episode.